All right, we'll get into uh, session two now. Um, so session two is going to be on abusing scripture. And before we get into this, once again, I want to remind you of everything you just heard on being gracious and, uh, and all that. That's an important thing to keep in mind with everything we're about to go into, okay? So the first thing I want to talk about in terms of abusing scripture is really the dangers of misuse or what happens if we don't have sound hermeneutics, what, what might go awry. And so there's a, there's a bunch of uh, examples to pull from. People have written whole books on this topic. Um, I just want to hit some of the ones I think I see more commonly and are, are more dangerous uh, if, if they occur. So the, the first thing I want to, uh, to ground is this, this idea that might be foreign to us, which is that orthodoxy, just because someone articulates something that is a true doctrine or true belief, orthodoxy does not equate to accuracy. So if you're reading a text of scripture, just because someone says something that is actually true does not mean that that, is a, that text of scripture is articulating to be true. And it's important that we can understand the difference between those things and engage in them appropriately. Because what happens if we, if we don't understand that difference, anytime we're in a Bible study or anytime we're reading scripture, anytime someone's speaking from a pulpit and, and we hear them say something, we hear them interpret a passage for us, we hear them apply that passage, we have to be asking the question, is that what this text is saying is that what this text means and if it's within the realm of orthodoxy what tends to happen is we just let our guard down and we allow whatever is said next to be true about that passage even if it's not really what the author was intending for the passage to mean and this is dangerous not because of what is being said but because it sets a precedent where uh you know that's a good idea that's that's fine until someone says something that's not orthodox and it's also inaccurate it's also not what the passage means and we say, well, I, I know that's not true, but now we've already given, uh, given ground and we've allowed into our minds or into our thinking an orthodox idea that's not argued from the text and many of those. And then we hear an unorthodox idea that's argued from the text and we really don't have good language or good understanding or a good ability to say, no, not this, but this. So it's an important thing for us to recognize just because someone says something that's true about God or true about sin or true about uh, love or, or what have you, does not mean that that's what any one particular text is emphasizing. If you were to take all of scripture into account, orthodoxy is defined by all of scripture and what it rightly means, but individual texts don't all say everything that is said in scripture. And it's important for us to be able to, to recognize the difference. And this is gonna become uh, important because in a few moments, we're gonna look at some examples of things that are true, are orthodox, but are inaccurate. And those inaccuracies lead open wrong interpretations that could be unorthodox. And that's an important kind of distinction to make. So the first, uh, first one of those um, ideas that uh, might, be, might be worth saying is under the realm of orthodoxy and things that are orthodox but not necessarily accurate, um, what often happens is this blurring between application and interpretation. So if someone is applying the text to your life or to my life, or we're reading a commentary and they're applying the text, we want to always ask the question, is this them applying it or is this them interpreting the text? And if you're not careful about the difference between application and interpretation, what happens is you begin to blur those lines and eventually what happens is you think that this text means this and it's whatever it applies into my life. And so a common example of this, if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, I'd, I'd like you to look there as well because we're going to examine this in its context. But it's uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. And this is an example of what happens when you blur the lines between application and interpretation. 
So Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this verse is well known, very commonly spoken of. In fact, it's been used for much good by God's grace uh, for drawing attention to scripture, drawing attention to reading the Bible. Um, but it is because of God's grace that all of those good things have come of the use of this verse, not necessarily because it was rightly handled in its use. So in, in, in general use or in general language, what this verse is ta typically taken to mean, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is God is a providential God. He loves his people. He loves Paul, who's his servant. And so God is seeking Paul's benefit and Paul can do anything he wants because God is the one who's behind Paul. So it's not Paul doing it. It's God's grace and God's providence going and supporting Paul. And those, all, all those things are orthodox, right? God loves his people. Paul is a servant of God. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul is going to get the greatest benefit for himself from God. Those are all orthodox ideas. But if we blur the line between the application of this text and the interpretation of it, and we, we're not grounded by the interpretation, what happens in application is a great many strange things. Like uh, people using this verse to justify uh, doing a startup business and saying, you know, this startup cannot fail because I'm a Christian and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or uh, doing something that you should not do um, and then saying, you know, this is not going to fail because I know that in scripture it says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not me failing it, it would be God failing and God can't fail, so I'm gonna go ahead and do this anyway. Uh, people take this as maybe like a false sense of confidence. How it was initially used by, to draw much attention to the verse is by um, a football player who uh, put it under his, um, on his, what do you call that? Uh, eye black, thank you. I was gonna say eye shadow, but um, he put it on his eye black and uh, he used this as kind of a, a key verse for him playing and you know doing really well in sports. And he did really well in sports and it draw a lot of attention to the verse. And since then, the meaning or the, the purpose of that verse has been so obscured and taken out of its context. Now the question is, okay, how do we not necessarily blur the line between interpretation and application? Well, we're not gonna do a deep dive into it, but the whole reason Paul writes Philippians, he's writing from a jail, basically defending his orthodoxy as a teacher of the church. And there's people who are seeking, his ben or people who are seeking to go against him. There are people who are uh, slandering his name. Uh, there are people who are basically saying, because Paul's in prison all the time, uh, you shouldn't listen to Paul. You know, he's kind of uh, a very disruptive person and listen to us instead. And Paul is out of all this suffering, out of all this humiliation of being beaten, uh, scorned in prison, uh, really kind of being on his last leg in imprisonment. He writes and his, his last encouragement, his last exhortation is essentially this comfort in God's providence in his current situation of having been scorned and mocked and beaten and, and in his current state. And he essentially says, you know, while in prison, um, he's, he's learned that he can be content in all things because he can do all things through God who strengthens him. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so the context of the verse shapes our interpretation. The interpretation being that Paul is preserved by God's grace in his current state of suffering. And he can endure this current state of suffering because of God who gives him strength. So the, the thrust or the interpretation grounds any application that we might have. And you might say, well, you know, that seems like we might be narrowing the application unnecessarily. And actually it doesn't narrow the application. It helps us to have a richer and deeper application of any text of scripture because now Philippians 4.13 is not some, some text that, that deals with being successful in business or winning football games. First, uh, Philippians 4.13 is a text that deals with suffering uh, being in a state of painful, uh, a painful condition, hurting, heartbreak, 
and, and God being with you in it and, and, and strengthening you and encouraging you in that situation. It's, it's more comforting to know the right interpretation of the text and to be able to apply that faithfully than it is to generally or broadly or almost vaguely apply the text. So when we blur the lines between interpretation and application, something that's orthodox but inaccurate can sneak in and we can actually miss a really profoundly uh, important thing to understand, which is that God uh, is with his people even in their suffering and he strengthens them even in their suffering. That's an important thing to understand about this verse. And that, that grounding or that anchoring of the interpretation helps us to dictate what, what application we can use. So if you are a Christian who's in a state of suffering, in a state of pain, you're facing some hardship, uh, God is strengthening you in that situation. He's working in that situation. And he's, he's able to keep you and preserve you despite all of what it might feel like is surrounding you. You can be content, not because you're content or because you're a pious person, but because God is with you and strengthening you. So it's important to understand kind of the difference between those two things. So that's one way that uh, this can go wrong. Um, the, uh, the other uh, maybe wrong way to interpret the text, it might be uh, like a secondary category, uh, would be the idea that the text means uh, whatever I think the text means as a reader. So as a reader, you generate meaning from the text as you read it and as you apply it to your life. Um, there's more technical names for this idea. It actually goes by a bunch of different names from a bunch of different writers. Uh, but the basic uh, way this plays out is you read a text of scripture, you ask the question, what does it have to do with me? And whatever follows is the meaning of that text. So you read uh, Philippians 4.13 and you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means that I'm encouraged and I can do whatever I want. And now that's what the text means. And people will argue that this is a valid way to interpret scripture. The problem, obviously, with this is that there's no way for you to come back from that kind of a hermeneutic and, and pull someone in from a dangerous thought that they might have, and they're using scripture now to justify uh, their belief or their practice. Uh, another thing is it kind of makes scripture mean whatever we want it to mean, and not whatever the author of scripture wanted it to mean. And it's important that we recognize the difference between, because when the author is writing the text, he's writing it to an audience in a context for a specific reason. And if we strip all of that away and we just pull his words out and we ask the question, how do I feel about what he just said? and that's what the text means to us, we've, we, we, there's no basis in any kind of authorial intent for that text. And that's very dangerous because we would say scripture is our highest authority, and so scripture has to, has to mean something. It has to have actually an authority that it carries, and so we can't be that authority over the text. The text is our authority, and it sits in judgment over us. And this hermeneutic, like whatever I read is, is what I believe about the text, that's dangerous because it makes us the authority over scripture and scripture is our servant to believe or to practice or to justify anything that we want to do. Uh, that's, it, this is primarily driven, honestly, by our proclivity to be lazy in thinking, in practice, and we don't like doing the hard work of examining, you know, who is the author, what's his argument, and kind of rooting ourselves there. And so the, the lazier and the nicer way to get a quick, uh, quick dopamine hit out of scripture is to, to pick it up, to read it, and to say, well, this is how I feel about this, this is how I reflect on this, and that's what it means. And so it's, it's driven by primarily laziness. And so we want to we wanna combat that, and we want to say that we're not going to settle for low thinking about the text. We're going to consider the text as highly as our, uh, as our doctrine allows, which is that it is God's inerrant word to us. And so we're going to treat it like that, like it actually means something. That's another danger. Um, and within that circle of danger, the same thing applies. Just because it's orthodox, whatever you said from the text, does not mean it's an accurate, accurate representation of what the text meant. Um, 
Next, we probably want to talk a little bit about context. Uh, we're going to talk about all the correct uses of these things in a moment, but context is an important thing for us to understand just to interpret scripture. But there's two ways to go wrong with context. One is to overemphasize the context to the point where uh, the context or the, the, the situation or the setting in which that text was written uh, basically completely neutralizes what the text ever meant. And there's another wrong thing to do, which is to ignore the context completely, uh, which is to also misunderstand and misconstrue what the text says. So if we, if we were to underemphasize context, uh, you know, when Jesus is doing his healing miracles, we would say that you know, we as followers of him should be able to also do those miracles. It misses the context of what he's doing, why he's doing it, what it's communicating to his audience, and you lose a whole lot of stuff, and you have a really incorrect doctrine at the end of that, which is that I should be able to do everything that Jesus does. So that's an underemphasis of context. An overemphasis of context to the point where it neutralizes scripture or scripture's teaching would be uh, something like, uh, you know, when Paul is making his argument in Romans that homosexuality is a sin, uh, what we should understand is he's talking specifically about this kind of uh, young boy and older man kind of uh, pedastry, a rape kind of system. And so that's really what he's arguing against. He's not against uh, consensual, same-sex, adult relationships. That's not what he's arguing against. And so we should, we should know that about the context of first century Rome. Uh, and so we should, we should understand Paul's words in its context. And what you do with that is you overemphasize context and you construe this kind of, you know, not, not a truly fake con, uh, context because that, that was truly going on. But you're saying that's what Paul's talking about and that actually neutralizes or, or balances Paul's words to the point where now you're saying, so homosexuality, homosexuality in fact is not a sin. Even though those texts, Paul is saying that homosexuality is, is sinful. So we can overemphasize context and neutralize it. Another example of this would be women uh, preaching in churches. You know, uh, Paul, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, you know, women should be silent in church. And people say, you know, that's a specific kind of context that's happening there. And while it's true, we have to understand the context of what's happening. We can't lean on context so heavily that now we just say, and so ignore everything else that followed because we're not in that same context. It's a, it's a lazy way to think about scripture. And so we have to ask the question, how much does context inform our interpretation? Not just say that, oh, this is a different context, so it doesn't apply to us today. Uh, maybe another underemphasis of context that is a little bit more humorous is the example of foot washing. So uh, we've probably all been in situations, maybe you're more okay with this uh, than not, but um, where we're Christians, you know, well-meaning, we'll say, you know, we're going to show how much we love each other, how much we want to serve each other, so we're going to wash each other's feet. And uh, foot washing has a, has a contextual meaning, uh, and that meaning is not the same meaning that we apply to it today. We think of foot washing as a strange practice because we literally have no contextual association with foot washing. And so to say we're going to foot wash because they foot washed in scripture is not understanding the context appropriately because foot washing is saying, I'm a servant of you, I'm humble to you, I'm in submission to you, and I'm going to love you well. That's what foot washing is about. It's not about the act of washing someone's feet. So while good intention Christians might, you know, practice foot washing, for example, at a wedding, or they might practice it when they're really trying to under, underscore brotherly love or brotherly nature or sisterly camaraderie, they're not, what they're not doing is applying the context of that verse appropriately. So that's maybe a more humorous example, a little bit less dangerous, but uh, nonetheless, a uh, misunderstanding of context. Now these, uh, uh, now the next two I want to go through uh, rather quickly because I want to get to some examples here, but... Um, one wrong way to use scripture is called the proof text method, which is where you essentially take a verse out of context and you use it to mean whatever you wanted it to mean. Uh, like I said, we have really good access to tools. One of the dangers of access to tools is that we know how to, if you don't know how to use the tool, you can very easily misuse a tool and that's not a good thing. So you can go on Bible Gateway, you can search verses that have to do with love 
and then you'll get like a top you know 50 or whatever list of verses that deal with love and then you're just going to like clip you know the few that you know seem like they warm your heart and then you're going to apply those texts as you know a really robust theology of love and you might get very mixed results depending on how orthodox you are in your own thinking uh, because this method does not guarantee any kind of good result because what you're doing is you're saying i have an idea and I want scripture to agree with my idea. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to search through the whole corpus of scripture. And there's a lot of scripture. And I'm going to get scripture to agree with whatever my initial idea was. And I'm going to just search for the verses that seem to agree with it. And usually that means I'm going to clip just this one verse, not in its context and not nearly appropriately. And so when you strip it from its context, you're going shopping for whatever scripture agrees with. And you're proof texting. You're not studying the verse in its context with its authorial intent and using it appropriately. Usually what's happening is you've got an idea and scripture will agree with you and you have a tool that can help you to find scripture that seems to agree with you and that's a very dangerous thing. So proof texting is something to be avoided. Uh, this is particularly true uh, if we're approaching a topic and we're, we're not very biblically informed and so we Google a topic in scripture and we're, we're really usually sifting for what agrees with us. This is something in research as well um, where we have a bias towards whatever we already agree with and so we're not going to pay careful attention to conflicting data. And so that's an important thing to pay attention to. A great many number of false teachings come out of that kind of proof, testi proof texting. Um, and then the last uh, two things I want to say, well, one of them is uh, a kind of false teaching or a kind of abuse of scripture to pay attention to carefully. And then we'll look at an example of that as well. Um, and this one is uh, abuse or misuse of the original languages in preaching, teaching, or Bible study. And the reason I bring this up is because Scripture is written, we have, you know, copies in English and there's, you know, a couple translations that might be presented in the room, but something, you know, that exists maybe a generation before us is only like one translation of, of the Bible was available, the King James Version, that was it. And if you were to compare the Bible that I have in front of me here with the King James Version, there's going to be differences and, and disputes or things like that. And so if I'm not, if I'm not knowledgeable about scripture and how all this stuff works, what, what might happen is I really stress a particular verse or a particular verb or a particular even like part of speech that's present in my translation of the English Bible, but might be absent from yours. And if I'm not careful in studying that, what I'm doing is I'm taking language and I'm pressing it down to such a tight and heavy meaning that now I'm really leaning on something that I shouldn't be leaning on. Uh, and there's, there's a great number of examples of this, um, but I want to just look at one example of this, which is pretty important to, to pay attention to. Um, and this one is in uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. And then we'll look at an uh, example that's orthodox, but not uh, accurate after this. So this one is uh, just, uh, just a heretical belief. So uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so most of our translations will agree on that in English. Uh, but there are cultic groups that would have a translation of the Bible that differs from this. And they would differ because in the, in the Greek original, there's an article that's lacking here. And so people will make whole... Uh, debates or theologies out of the fact that there's an article missing here that in English we have. So they would say it's not in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. They would say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And they would say that out of the fact that the article is lacking in Greek, that means there's a whole different theology. The son is not God. He's a God, a creation of God, but not truly God himself. And so we need to know, uh, you know, the limitations of language. And we need to know language well enough to know that sometimes there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between one language and another. Um, 
and maybe a more uh, plain example of the misuse of language or the, the pressing of language in an inappropriate way would be actually at the end of John's gospel. If you go to John chapter 21, and again, this one's an orthodox example, but not an accurate example. John chapter 21, and I just want to look at uh, verse 15 through 17. So John uh, says this, says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So in this text, uh, something that's orthodox uh, is commonly communicated is there's this idea that uh, in the Greek, there's this interplay between the two different words of love. And you might have heard these two different terms, phileo and agape. And if you've grown up in Christian home, you know that there's a difference between phileo love and agape love. And agape love is, you know, God's love to his people. And phileo love is more like, you know, camaraderie, brotherly kind of love. And in the text of this verse, or in, the, in these verses we just looked at, uh, uh, preachers and teachers will often emphasize that when Peter answers Jesus, he says phileo. Uh, and when Jesus is asking the question to Peter, he says agape. So he's asking Peter, do you love me? Agape me. And Peter responds to him by saying, I phileo you. I, I love you, you know, at this, at this level. Or the way it kind of gets taught is, I like you and I love you. And Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? Will you serve me? And Peter's saying, I like you, I'm, I, prefer, I prefer you, you know, but he's not saying, I agape you, I love you, in, a, in, a, in that kind of sense. And so uh, what's interesting about that is, is it orthodox and true that agape love is something that's used by the Christian church to, to mean a kind of deep or reverential kind of love? Yes, that's true. But, at least in this text, uh, something that is, is clear, and most English translations don't screw this up, they get this correct, they say love, 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 love the whole time. And that's because uh, if you read John, uh, he likes to use near synonyms all the time to talk about different words. So when he's talking about love, it's not uncommon for him to say uh, agape and phileo kind of back and forth, just because that's kind of one of the styles of his writing. In the same way that if you were to write a letter to someone or you write a text, you're not just gonna repeat the same vocabulary word all the time. If you know another word that could you know, create some sentence variety. And so uh, here in the text, it's an orthodox idea that God in fact, or Jesus does in fact agape Peter. But that's not the stress of what's on the text. The text is, you know, repeating the question three times and Peter saying, I, I actually serve you. I will uh, teach your sheep. And uh, this is like kind of a reaffirmation of him denying Jesus three times. So the repetition in English is preserved. And if we know the difference between a good argument from the original languages and a bad one, we can recognize his good and bad teaching from it. Um, uh, another thing to maybe pay attention to or to, to pay uh, close attention to in, in this case or in other cases is anytime someone is teaching God's word and they say, you know, in this verse, the Greek here is this, and it means this, and that means this, this, and this, you should probably be skeptical of arguments like that because we have a giant amount of English translations that are all faithful to uh, scripture. And, in, and the English translation has not lost the true meaning of the text of scripture. The English translation is not uh, a mistranslation of God's word and somehow obscuring details that are there. Uh, all of our English translations are faithful translations of God's word. And the reason all of that is important is because 
when we, when we don't know the original languages, we don't know how language works, one of the things that is easy for us to do is to stress words inappropriately or to uh, make them mean things that they're not really intended uh, to mean. Now, we'll look at more at examples like this later with sound hermeneutics, but um, for that, I'm just gonna pause there at session two and open up the questions.